Hi, and welcome back to the Lancaster School District podcast, School Buzz. The purpose of the podcast is to discuss relevant topics with individuals who work for the district, um, for parents, students, and community members. I'm your host, Rebecca Cooksey, and today we're going to be talking about campus safety during the time of COVID. Uh, campus safety has always been one of our big concerns. Uh, we use Raptor for visitor verification, cameras on campus, and campus is secured with locked doors and limited access. It's always been a priority for us. But COVID has brought some new challenges and new requirements for keeping staff and students safe. This has increased what we're doing dramatically on campus. So let me give you an introduction to our, our two guests today. We have Dr. Larry Fries, who's the Assistant Superintendent of Business Services, and Jenny Sampson, Coordinator of Climate, School Safety, and Emergency Management. So welcome to both of you. And if you could give us a short bio, that would be great. Thank you for having us, Rebecca. My name is Larry Fries, uh, Assistant Superintendent of Business Services. I've been with the district since uh, 2017. I'm in my uh, 33rd uh, year in public education, uh, first as a teacher, school administrator, and this is my first foray uh, devoted specifically to school business. In this particular district, the business division represents uh, the normal things you would think of a business division, such as accounting, payroll, uh, and facilities and that sort of thing, but also um, as the divisions of risk management. And, and for this particular situation, uh, the superintendent deemed that addressing issues of health and safety, many times as it's related to facility function, would also fall under my purview. So that's given me the opportunity to uh, work with this uh, dynamite person named Jenny Sampson, who's going to introduce herself and what her responsibility is. Thank you for that kind introduction, Dr. Fries. Um, my name is Jenny Sampson. I'm the coordinator of school safety and emergency management. Um, I started out as a classroom teacher in 1996 and transitioned into safety and emergency management through a teacher on special assignment position um, in 2013. I was appointed as the district's first coordinator of school safety and emergency management in 2017. and. Believe it or not, Dr. Fries was my trigonometry teacher when I was in high school, so we go way back. The pleasure working with him in a professional sense nowadays. I've really enjoyed my time working with him through um, this unfortunate COVID pandemic. <laughs> and occasionally I do ask her a trigonometry question, and lo and behold, she still gets them right. Well, that is awesome. I did not know that the, Dr. Fries was your teacher. That's pretty cool. Yes, it is. Uh, and I see you're in, I, we, I can see you because we're on a, a WebEx thing. We're not in the same room. And I see, Jenny, you have a brand new office, right? I do. And um, Dr. Freeze's facilities crew did a phenomenal job in, on our offices. And I'm very appreciative because now I have windows. Yes. That's a big deal. Before you were in like an old bathroom. So I'm very impressed that you have windows you can see outside. <laughs> yes. Yes. Very nice. Well, so we all know our worlds have been rocked by COVID um, since March, but what are some of the major changes that we have made to keep our staff safe? Well, you know, we, we always focus on keeping our staff safe, and uh, that's a primary responsibility of facilities, uh, that uh, this, the safety of not only staff and students, but of guests and the maintenance of our facilities. But when COVID came along, it then created kind of a different focus on safety and uh, and hence that's why I've kind of been uh, introduced 
to the COVID side of safety. So now we're looking at trying to reduce or in some cases prevent the transmission of the virus or in other cases, and Jenny will talk about this in a little bit, what happens if somebody actually uh, begins to show symptoms and they might have contracted the virus while they're at work or while they're at school? Uh, we have followed uh, a number of guidelines, and we'll talk about those agencies in a few minutes, but we follow the guidelines of, of the major agencies in the nation, state, and, and local governments. And those agencies all deal around with how exactly does the virus transmit? And from the science that we've seen thus far, we know that it transmits, uh, since it's a, a kind of a, an infection that gets into the lungs, it transmits primarily by droplets that when people cough or sneeze, even talk or laugh, those droplets can come out. And if the person that's near to them happens to inhale those droplets, and that person, the first person is a positive uh, virus case, the second person could catch the infection. And we've seen worldwide with close to 39 million infections, that this thing is pretty communicable. It does translate, transfer easily between people. It is more communicable than the flu, and it is getting close to being as communicable as something like measles and TB, which are highly contagious diseases that are airborne. They're just in the air that people breathe. And nobody's actually said that coronavirus is uh, an aerosolized virus, meaning it's just floating around in the air. But uh, the communicability of this disease is really amazing a lot of scientists across the world. Um, what our scientists here in the United States have noticed is that uh, because of where this uh, virus originated, which was on in the country of China, China has uh, experienced other outbreaks of uh, viral diseases, and their first approach to tackling disease is wearing a mask. Once it became clear that mask wearing was important, very important, and this was in about March, mid-March, late March, the immediate requirement became everybody should be wearing masks in the work environment, or environments where you're close to another person. So one of the requirements that we have is that all of our employees uh, must wear masks, as well as our students. When they come back at some time, they must also wear masks in the classroom. If you work in an office all by yourself, at your own little space, you don't have to wear the, the mask in the office. Or if you get up and leave the office to uh, go talk to somebody or walk down the hallway, you need to put your mask on. That's acknowledgement that if we can keep the, the respiratory droplets close to the person, close to each individual person, you reduce, greatly reduce the transmissibility of this particular virus. So everybody, every employee is required to wear a mask. Every student in the classroom will wear a mask. And if a visitor comes to our school, they too will be required to wear a mask. Uh, I have a question for you on, you know how you said that China started wearing masks uh, much sooner than we did in America. And the virus obviously started there. But I've heard that in Asian cultures, it's more common to wear a mask in public. In the United States, it wasn't common at all. Is that true? It is. And it's primarily because those countries have had experience with viral outbreaks. The SARS virus uh, that occurred back in the early 2000s was primarily in Southeast Asia. And so those people at that time were wearing masks too. Pollution is also an issue in China. 
And the outcome is that people wear masks. They have embraced the concept of masks. Here in the United States, it's taking us some time, and that's primarily due to uh, our country is, is really cherishes individualism. And so when, it, when the government says you wear a mask, a lot of people are like saying, you can't tell me what to do, I'm an individual. So it's, it's been a challenge to have to say to people, it's not just for your safety, it's for the safety of others. And so when two people are, are in, interacting with each other and they're both wearing masks, the probability of transmission greatly drops. So this is not only something you do for yourself, but it's also have the, the, the thought in mind has to be, this is um, an altruistic sort of approach to take. We have to be concerned about the health of others. And the best way to do that is to make sure we wear a mask in public and when we're interacting with each other. Department of Public Health sees that as a priority, and we see that as a priority also in all of our schools. So masks is the name of the game. When students return full-time, they will. We, we encourage them to bring their own cloth face coverings, but if a student should happen to forget, we will have uh, face coverings, disposable coverings, that we can give to them to use for the day uh, and the hope that they bring back their own. So mask is one of the big things. We also do some other stuff uh, for frontline offices that have to deal with the public. Uh, we have plexiglass screens. If employees are in work areas where their desks are not six feet apart, we'll have a plexiglass divider between them. We practice social distancing. So if two people are communicating with each other, they're going to be at least six feet apart and they're going to be wearing masks. It's like a double one-two attack of the virus. Um, but we also do things, for instance, uh, when people want to have lunch, uh, they can't have lunch together. Unless they're sitting in the cafeteria and they're at least six feet apart, we still adhere to the social distancing requirements. And if we ever get to the point where there is actually somebody who's symptomatic and then later they turn out to test positive, we also have a tracing protocol. Jenny will talk about that uh, in a few minutes. I know that we recently had a um, baby shower for an employee and we did it outside and we sat the chairs six feet apart from each other and everybody wore masks and it was hard because you see people that you haven't seen for a while like oh hi oh yeah I can't I can't hug you <laughs> I gotta say hi from over here uh, makes it a little bit difficult especially when you're coming back to a place that you've worked for for a long time and you want to see your friends or you want to have lunch with them um, that that six feet is a little bit hard but it's something that we have to do to keep each other safe. Yeah, and it's a point you made that you held it outside. That's another uh, recommendation from Department of Health is that uh, introduce fresh air. Or if you're going to have meetings of people, do it outside where you're maintaining uh, social distancing. Remember, if this virus is actually up in the air, and the science is inconclusive right now, but if it's up in the air, then exchanging the air as often as you can is critical. So meeting outside is the perfect solution to that, to, to make sure that, that that virus disperses in a rapid situation. Inside the classroom, one of the approaches that we're taking is uh, increasing the quality of our filters that are on, on our heating, venting, ventilation, and air conditioning systems, but also introducing as much fresh air into the classroom so teachers will be encouraged to open the windows, to prop open the door. We can change our HVAC systems to introduce more fresh air into the ventilation system. All of these adhere to that concept of dispersion. Disperse the virus with as much fresh air as you can. 
And at the same time, if teachers can hold their classes outdoors, take the kids outdoor and do it there, and that allow the kids to get a little free space. And if kids are outside on the playgrounds and they're playing, they can actually take off their mask. That's one of the things Department of Public Health says. As long as they're not near each other and they're outdoors, they can take a break from wearing the mask. And we know that the, we know that as workers, you can't wear a mask all day. Kids are not going to want to wear the mask all day, too. So that'll be an opportunity to them to uh, let their face be free to the wind. <laughs> Breathe the fresh air, right? <clears throat> exactly. So where does the district get the information about staff and student safety procedures? And how often is that information updated? Well, you know, th there's a couple different bodies that we uh, pay close attention to. One is the Centers for Disease Control, that's CDC, which is based in Atlanta. And you have some of the top infectious disease experts in the world who work there. They, are, they continually are receiving information from hospitals and research institutions. People who are on the front line with dealing with COVID patients but also those who are making observations about how this disease transmits between people. They're also on the side of how to treat the people who have it. We have school. We don't have to worry about treatment. We're worried about uh, stopping the disease. So they, they are the main uh, worldwide body, along with the World Health Organization. But when it starts to get down closer to our neck of the woods, there's the uh, California Department of Public Health, which passes down its particular requirements statewide. We also have the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, and they, at a minimum, must follow the state's requirements, but they can also enhance those requirements and make them more strict. Can't make them less strict, but they can make them more strict. And they have, in a couple cases, instituted more strict requirements, and we as a district follow those. So what we are what we regularly do on a daily basis, uh, we receive communications from the County Department of Public Health about what has changed with their specific requirements in dealing with health and safety of our students. And the county does a really good job of breaking up these uh, chunks of information based upon what sort of industry you're in. So they have uh, recommendations specifically for education. They have recommendations for businesses, for sporting events. And depending upon what type of organization you're with, you can go to their website and find those specific recommendations. What's, what's really nice about the way they've worked their system recently is that anytime they post an update, it'll, the document has the date on it, but they also go so far as to indicate in yellow what new information is. The school's requirement is of 17 pages long. So when they put something new, something new, we don't want to have to comb through to find it. They put it right at the top of the document and say, here's what changed. So that Department of Public Health document is really our Bible and our guide piece for what we're going to do. And once we told the county that we're preparing to bring back students, they sent people out from the county to look at what we have set up to serve the needs of our students and our employees to make sure that we're meeting all the components of their documents. And then they shared with us some recommendations to how to improve things. So they really are partners with us in keeping people safe. They're not a gotcha group, but they are a group that will say, if you don't institute these requirements, you can't open. Or if you 
suddenly get lax, they can come in and shut you down. That's any educational institution or any business. So they do carry a hammer, but their hammer is because they're trying to keep the public safe. And if they deem that you're being unsafe and that your setup would allow the transmission of the virus, they will shut you down. Yeah, I've been on some of those phone calls with Dr. Barbara Ferrer, and she's been very good about communicating on a weekly basis, sometimes more than a weekly basis, um, just with school um, administrators on what's required uh, for reopening. And those, it, like you said, it's 17 pages. It has changed a couple of times. Um, but we are opening our ACES program on Monday, bringing some children back into small pods. And uh, we're going to see how that goes and make sure that, that that program runs smoothly before we move forward with anything else. Yeah, and, and one more thing to add, Rebecca, is on, on Fridays, uh, the, the County Department of Public Health has a countywide uh, call-in meeting, and you can ask questions. They talk about the current state of where the, the county is uh, with the state's requirements, and it's just, it's just information uh, saturation and ability for us to ask, ask questions. So they really are trying to be in touch, and that's how we really get the most recent updates is through those Friday meetings. So I would calling in today at 12 o'clock to listen mm -hmm. into that meeting. I will be on that I meeting too. too. <laughs> Everybody's on it. <laughs> I've heard that there's a waiver that we can bring our TK through second grade students back to school. Can you give me some details about that? Sure, I'll be glad to jump in on that one. Um, the waiver process is actually pretty, um, pretty stringent because as Dr. Freese said, it's really important that we have all the measures in place to keep everybody safe. So there is an actual application process that unlike um, the cohort notification form that we had to fill out that brought back, brought in the teams to look at our schools, the waiver process is actually a lot more difficult and a lot more um, stringent in terms of the requirements that have to be in place. There is an actual application that must be submitted and is required to be approved not only through the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, but also the State Department of Public Health. So there's um, just an enormous amount of information we have to provide, uh, mainly uh, what, are, what is the case rate for our particular area. Um, that's a huge one, and right now our case rate in our area is still relatively high compared to other areas in LA County. We also have to submit um, an application for each individual school. So we can't apply as a district, it has to be for the school. And the reason that the state decided that TK through second grade were the grades we were going to focus on is because schools were very concerned about teaching kids how to read virtually. It's extremely difficult to teach a kindergartner their letters and sounds in a virtual environment. So that is why they chose those, those grade levels. That was not a district decision, that was from the state. And so as we have declined in our case rate, the county finally agreed to allow the second grade waiver process to move forward even though we're still in that most restrictive tier, the purple tier. Whether or not we're going to eventually submit a waiver, which we're, we're not at that state yet, but there are other pieces such as we have to have 
um, letters of support from our community, from our parents, from our associations, our, our labor groups. We have to have those support letters as well. And we're, we're working on the logistics still of putting those more restrictive pieces in place to bring kids on campus. So at this point in time, we're close. We're closer to being ready to bring kids back, but we're just not there yet. We, we need to have those discussions with those community members. We will eventually get there, but we're just not there quite yet. Yeah, and I know that there's a lot of work involved in that. You've got to get the, the labor yes. unions to agree. And I was kind of disappointed that it was by school instead of by district because it's hard to say they're only going to do 30 per week in a, a county as large as ours. And it's going to take yes. four years to open up schools again. Exactly. And and that, that brings me to that point is the county is only allowing 30 schools each week. And there's only six schools per supervisor territory so that means in our area there's only going to be six schools allowed to open using this waiver process per week and you know as you know in our district we have 21 schools so it you know it's it's kind of a crapshoot who they're going to choose although they are prioritizing schools with high uh, free and reduced lunch and soci and low socioeconomic status so um, there is a priority list, but um, again, if we're if we're still having those conversations about what it looks like to bring children back to school, um, we're just not quite there yet to submit a waiver. Right, and that area is not just Lancaster. That area is Antelope Valley, Santa Clarita. Um, it's a huge area. So six schools in that huge area is not very many schools. Right. Well, and keep in mind that it's not just public schools. We have private schools applying and charter schools that are applying. So it's it's literally thousands of schools that would like to bring children back, but with only 30 a week being allowed to open, that's really challenging. Exactly. As so. a driving force at the state level that's behind the current rules in place for, and in many cases, four-tiered approach that the most restrictive level is called the purple tier and Los Angeles County is currently in the purple tier edging towards red the second tier and as we when we move to the red tier flexibility increases we have more opportunities and more ways to open and the goal is to move down to that bottom tier that allows us to open our schools completely with some social distancing requirements still, but that's showing that the outbreak of the virus has really dropped down and we're moving closer to returning to normal. The challenge we're seeing is that worldwide, cases are climbing again. We're going through that fall winter surge, particularly in Europe, but also in many states in the United States, cases are on the climb again. So we kind of do this up and down thing. We get ready to open, but if the cases rise, oh, we stay right where we are. That's not only frustrating for parents as they want their kids to come back, it's frustrating for we as, as the planners because we're getting ready to open, we're getting everything in place, and suddenly someone pulls the rug out and says, nope, cases are on the rise, cease and desist, and keep doing distance learning. So it's kind of like, you know, you go to give your dog a treat, 
dog goes up again, you pull the cleat back, say, sorry, no, sit there. And then you keep teasing your dog, and eventually, well, he bites your hand. <laughs> you price for that. So it's, it's been very frustrating for us. Uh, but we keep moving in the direction, knowing that plan to open. Keep moving in that direction, because we know that someday that will happen. Well, and that was so true this summer. I know we, we spent just weeks and weeks planning of this kind of hybrid model or, you know, coming about an A-B day or just all these different plans to come up with. And we were ready to go. And then, boom, nope, you're completely on virtual. So that was, yeah, very frustrating for everybody. I got to visit some classrooms this week to walk with, just kind of virtually go into classrooms and see how things are going. And I was so impressed with the quality of instruction that I saw even like Jenny said, it's hard to teach little kids how to read. The quality of instruction in kindergarten, oh my gosh, it was just awesome. And the things that the kids were doing with the teachers and had whiteboards and were showing their work. One school that I was at said their attendance has increased in virtual in the virtual platform, which I was super surprised by. And another teacher said that this is the first time she's taught subtraction with regrouping where kids have got it so fast. And I said, well, why do you think that's true? And she said, well, because they're focused on me. They don't have the other classroom distractions of people getting up and walking around. And so they're really actually learning this faster, which I was amazed by. So I'm, I'm, that's some good news. I've, I've really been impressed with the innovation of some of the teachers and their adaptability. This is not easy for them. So I've, I've been able to walk through a couple of walk through in air quotes, um, a couple of classrooms myself. And, you know, the ingenuity of the teachers in the classroom has been really impressive. So I've, I've enjoyed seeing some of the adaptations and the unique twists they've been able to put on some of the lessons in this in this time. So it's been fascinating. Yeah, I, w I would agree. Um, when we bring students back to face-to-face -face instruction, how will classrooms be different now that we've had all this virtual education? We know we've learned a lot from how we've brought back our employees. Although we haven't had students, we have to keep our employees safe. And the, a lot of the direction we received from the county on how to keep our employees safe also filters right into the classroom and how to keep students safe. There's some bare minimums here that we have. First, all kids uh, have to wear a mask. Here's, Here's a great situation to show that the state had one parameter and the county made it more straight. The state level says uh, children under age two should not wear a mask and children, I think, age two through second grade, it's optional. And then third grade enough, they should all wear masks. Los Angeles County has said everybody who's two years old and over who goes to a school will wear a mask. So much so that if a child refuses to wear a mask, the county orders say that a child shall be excluded from face-to-face -face instruction, and they have to go back to distance learning. So the county's not messing around here when it comes to wearing a mask. We, we acknowledge that there's cases, there might be medical reasons why the child does not have to wear a mask. In that case, we have the clear face shields that have the drapes at the bottom. We do want, you know, we, we recognize that face-to-face -face instruction will always be superior to virtual learning, especially at the primary grade levels. But health and safety have to come first. And if a student doesn't want to wear a mask, then they're going to have to wear a face shield. And if they don't want to wear a face shield, they're going to have to transition back to the virtual learning. So that's one thing that students will see on a regular basis. What's good about this mask wearing is that 
kids are used to wearing masks now out in public. It's been like that since uh, March and April. So it's not a foreign body on them. The question's going to be, how long can they sit in a desk and wear a mask all day long? One of the things we've done recently is an outreach survey to our parents. And surprisingly, many parents said, how is my kid going to wear the mask? I have a hard time getting them to wear the mask when we go out to the grocery store or whatever. They're, and some of them have said, my kid's just not going to wear the mask. They're going to keep taking it off. So it's going to be a challenge we're going to face in dealing with students who aren't going to be wearing masks. We're going to have to come up with a way to address it. So besides the wearing the mask, social distancing, six-foot distance, is still mantra that's being practiced. If you've seen a, a, a standard classroom recently, you realize we can get 30 to 35 kids in there in this 1,000-square-foot space pretty efficiently, but you can't do it at six-foot distance. So we've tested the layout of student desks in different types of classroom configurations, and we can safely get between 13 and 15 desks in a classroom that maintains not only the social distancing between the students, but also the teacher. When we have an adult in the classroom, we have to keep the teacher safe and any other paraeducators in the classroom. So a student going in there is going to see a lot less furniture spaced out in these classrooms. They're going to be, of course, wearing the masks. We also are going to be promoting hand washing. So classrooms that have a sink in it, teacher will take a time out partway during the day, and each of the kids will go wash their hands with soap and water. That's part of the CDC recommendations. The classroom doesn't have a sink, and we have some horrible classrooms that don't have hand sanitizer in there, and students will use that to clean their hands. Uh, they'll notice, of course, like I said earlier, windows will be open, doors will be open. Uh, in classrooms where they maybe shared supplies or toys, they won't be doing that. They'll have their own set of supplies that they'll keep to themselves. And they may not be able to get and play on the playground as much as they're used to because playground access is going to be by groups of students. So one class might go out and play on the playground equipment, and when they're done, they're going to come off that equipment, and you're going to go out and sanitize all the common-touched areas, and it's going to take some time. And then the next kids, uh, group of kids can go out. So it's going to be a different experience from what the kids are used to. I think one of the biggest challenges that we're going to face that we don't quite really know how to deal with yet because we haven't seen it, kids are social animals. They want to they talk with each other. They want to hug each other. They want to give high fives. And especially since they haven't seen each other for so long, when we pull them back into this environment, the teachers and the admin are going to be hyper-focused on, you got to be six feet, of, feet apart. And these kids just want some human love. They want to give their friends hugs and high fives. And we have to keep them from doing that. And it just breaks my heart to think that something that's so ingrained in people and children to be close to their friends and put their arms around them, they're going to have to say, sorry, you can't do that. And to me, that's going to be one of the greatest challenges that we face is you want to keep them safe, but you want them to have what's considered a normal development experience that contributes to their social, emotional well-being, and you take away that piece. So I can't anticipate how that's going to turn out, but I know it's, that's going to be one of the great challenges we face when the kids come back to the classroom. I would agree because I have the same problem. I'm a social animal. I like to give people hugs. I like to, oh, you know, pat them on the back. And that's been really hard for me to just kind of like remember to stay apart from people. And, and when you're five, 
that's a huge challenge when you want to give your teacher a hug. It's going to be tough for everybody. Well, and I can tell you that visiting the school sites to um, look at isolation rooms, it is really surreal not to hear children in, mm -hmm. in the buildings. It's, um, it's very difficult because, you know, I've been in the education system for 25 years now, and to not hear children in the hallways or, you know, on the playgrounds, it's really challenging for me as a person because I know they're, the kids are at home and they should be at school learning and having fun and being with their friends and being social. So, yeah, it's it's been strange. Strange is a good word for it. Yeah, we, every one of us got into the profession because we like kids and like to be around them and to not have them has, has been very tough. Yes, it has been. Um, so what happens if someone comes to work, they're feeling fine, or they come to school, they're feeling fine, and then during the day, they show signs of uh, COVID? Uh, what happens that then? Well, that's a really good question, and it's asked very frequently. We have had instances where staff have come to work feeling fine, and then about partway through the day, they start feeling like they might have symptoms of COVID. And so what we've asked staff to do is not report to the office to report their symptoms, but to call the administrator on the telephone, let them know that they're having symptoms, and then go home. We do not want them walking through the building to potentially expose other people who may be in the building um, to report symptoms. So we've asked that, that they communicate from their current location and just go home if they're if they're able to. Um, that there are you know signs of emergency that we have to make sure that our employees are not exhibiting before they can leave. For instance, blue lips or face or or disorientation and confusion. Those are symptoms of a medical emergency associated with COVID. So we have to make sure that they're going to make it home safely before we can send them home. So we need, we need our staff who are feeling sick to notify their administrator. One, just to let them know that they're leaving for the day or for the week or whatever. But two, so that the administrator can kind of assess, you know, are they okay enough to drive themselves home? Do we need to have somebody from the household pick them up because they're too sick to make it home safe? So that, that's the staff angle. Um, when kids return, kids can develop symptoms for anything in the space of a few minutes. It is going to be a likelihood that at some point a child who felt fine in the morning is going to become symptomatic in the classroom. So we do have a process in our COVID response plan that outlines what happened. So the first thing that happens is the teacher notifies the health office so that the health clerk can start putting on um, additional PPE, their personal protective equipment. Um, we ask that because the health staff will be dealing with potentially symptomatic people, we have increased their level of personal protective equipment to include gloves a face shield in addition to a medical grade mask, um, not a cloth face covering because we need to increase the level of protection. So we're asking them to don a medical grade mask as well as an isolation gown. We just wanna make sure 
that our staff is safe even even if the child isn't truly have covid you know we we want to make sure our staff is safe the health clerk then goes to the classroom collects the child and the child's belongings and mind you the teacher will have a stock of uh, medical grade face coverings as well in the classroom the teacher will provide um, that medical grade face covering for the child because we want to just increase the um, protection of the other children by increasing the um, PPE for all the for that child. Mm -hmm. So they will be provided a more uh, protective face mask than a cloth face covering. The health clerk will escort that child with their belongings to an isolation room. All the school sites are required by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health to have an isolation room with um, certain items in stock to ensure sanitation and cleanliness, but also to protect the child and make sure that nobody else enters. There's signage all over the place to make sure that the isolation room isn't entered accidentally while it's in use. Um, staff sign-in sheets for contact tracing if necessary. But once they make it to the isolation room, they contact the parents to have them pick up. We're not going to take any chances. We want children who are sick to go home, regardless of the cost. Mm -hmm. We're not taking any chances. The parent will be contacted to pick up the child as soon as possible. We have also protocols for contact tracing in both staff and student cases. We are required to report positive COVID tests to the County Department of Public Health. It's part of that 17-page um, checklist that we, re we report the cases that are reported to us. Once the testing is complete, if they are negative, you know, they can come on after they finish their quarantine or self-isolation period, depending on the results of the test. So, but yes, we do contact trace and we notify the close contacts of somebody who has been exposed. And by definition, the LA County Department of Public Education, Public Health, excuse me, um, defines a close contact as being within within six feet for 15 minutes or more. So just passing somebody in the hallway does not constitute a close contact, or having direct contact with bodily fluids, so or secretions. So since everybody's wearing their mask, that second option should not really come into play in our facilities. Um, as long as everybody is doing what they're supposed to do, that second occasion should not be cause of a close contact. So, but when you have people who are in the same room within six feet of each other for greater than 15 minutes, that's when you can consider it a close contact. So that's why that social distancing aspect is very important and why people need to keep their distance even if they are wearing their masks. Because if I'm seven feet away from Dr. Freeze for 30 minutes, but we're both wearing our masks, that's not a close contact because we're too far apart for that to be considered a close contact. So we do notify people when, when they have been exposed according to that definition. 
we do not divulge the name of the person who has tested positive. That would violate HIPAA rules, and we take that very seriously. We do not want to disclose anybody's name unless it's absolutely necessary for reporting purposes to the county and for human resources purposes for allocating employees sick leave. You know, everything that Jenny described here was in reaction to somebody showing symptoms, and we're required to have something called an exposure management plan, and that's what she described in detail. But it's also important to know that we are being proactive in dealing with a potential infection, and so our goal is to never have anybody who shows symptoms, and part of the way that we do that is through screenings of our individuals before they come to school. So people are required to have a temperature check before they come onto our facilities. They're required to answer questions about their general health and have they been near somebody who's recently tested positive. So our goal is to not even allow those potential risks to come onto our school. So that by the time we get people out of school for the day, they've gone through that first high-level screening. We hope that that doesn't allow us to get to the second level where now we're reacting to somebody. But we know this is a tricky virus. People can be asymptomatic. They may not show any symptoms whatsoever. That's the type of thing where suddenly they're asymptomatic for however many days, and then they suddenly start showing symptoms. They passed our screening. That doesn't mean that those symptoms can't pop up. That's the second level that then Jenny talks about, that we have to have a way to keep that person isolated while we, we go through the process of making sure they're really not infected and, and protecting the rest of the people on there. So two-pronged approach. She described the second. The screenings are the first prong. Well, and my former superintendent used to say, hope is not a strategy. So I'm glad beyond our hope, we have a really good plan in place. That's great. Thank you both for coming on today. Super important topic. I know it's a concern for our staff. I know it's a concern for our parents, as they said. We know is when we get ready to send kids back to school, they want to make sure their babies are safe, and uh, so do we. I want to give a community shout-out to our partners from Baby to Baby. This group has donated backpacks, clothing, school supplies for our students. Just really generous. Brenda Kao and Marcia Muno, thank you so much. Thinking of our kids and providing them with some great things. So our theme for our next episode is supporting teachers during online instruction. I'll have my ed tech coaches, who I love very much, on the podcast. And you can find this podcast on iHeartRadio, Sprecher, iTunes, just about any place, and on the district webpage. So thank you very much, guys. Have a great day. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye.